my book recommendation I'm going to make this morning is actually one of my professors from seminary when I was going to school at Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Really, there is no other Reformed Theological Seminary. All the other campuses are just offshoots from ours. But, uh, but so this is a book. Also, I, I will fully confess it's not a very good title or cover. So I don't think it's a very good cover. Uh, how, it's How Jesus Runs the Church by Guy Prentice Waters. Uh, one of my favorite professors at school, easily the most organized professor at RTS. Um, he just gives you at the beginning of the semester an outline of the entire course, and he just lands it at the, at the last day of class exactly on time. And uh, as a very organized person myself, usually, uh, I really appreciate that personality. So for me, it was just, you know, two peas in a pod. Um, this book is a really good book, especially if you are in a Presbyterian context, and maybe that's not your background. Uh, maybe you come from a congregational background. Uh, maybe you've been a member maybe of a Reformed Baptist church or something like that. And maybe you wonder, why does the pastor administer the Lord's Supper, but the ruling elders don't? Or maybe you wonder, why is it that there is a presbytery? Where do you find that in scripture? This seems like kind of a new thing. Or maybe you think, what's a local church session? Why are their responsibilities what they are? Um, why is it called a session? All great questions. And I think that generally, Guy answers those questions in this book. And I have multiple copies of this. And if any of you want to borrow it, it would just fill my heart with joy if, you wanted to, if uh, you, my two copies ended up being lent out. Um, but he basically walks us through all of these basic questions of Christianity. And um, if you ever thought, I want to read a book on church government, but I don't want it to be that gigantic one by James Bannerman, you know, the one you're always thinking about. Um, <laughs> then you go with this one instead. And this is great. I love this book and I, I reference it quite often. So I'm just going to pass this one around. And uh, I hope that he sells dozens of copies because of me. So, um, But this morning we've been talking about the life of Jesus. Um, and we have come now to Jesus' teaching. We've started talking about the ethics of the kingdom. We started talking about what was it Jesus actually taught. Uh, he's a rabbi. He's a teacher. What's he teaching? And so we talked about his own fulfillment of the law. We talked about Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. We discussed a little bit what that means. And now I want to talk about some of the method of Jesus' teaching. Because we talked about the fact that Jesus used um, all sorts of everyday illustrations like crops and plants and, and personal interactions and stories in people's lives in order to convey the message that he needed to convey. One of, the, one of the instruments that Jesus used for communicating... Oh, I can use this one. No good. Uh, one of the things that Jesus used for the purpose of teaching was... He used parables. He used parables a lot. And it was his most common teaching device. It was the thing that he used. Per, or at least it was his most important. I don't know if it was the most common. But it was his teaching device that he used to get across these... These important messages. So you think perhaps of the parable of the sower. You think of this, the parable of the prodigal son. I think many of us are familiar with the prodigal son. Uh, the parable of the lost sheep. Um, or in our New Testament reading this morning, and I think last week, we had the, uh, the parable of the lost coin. 
Um, you know, he's wanting to convey in these stories, what? Like a message about the importance of the kingdom and about how important it is when somebody confesses and follows Jesus, right? And he tells a story where in everyday life, somebody is desperate for something and they find it. And he tells that story and you can just imagine his audience. These are people who have lost a few things in their time. They know what it's like to be desperate, to find something, and then to actually find it. Um, and so the list of parables that Jesus tells is, is actually very long. Uh, it would have been good for me to synchronize and actually have the parables of Jesus book this week instead of last week as my recommendation. Uh, but in that book, Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce goes through all the parables of Jesus and opens them up and exposits them and explains them. Um, now, here's the thing about parables. And this is the funny thing about the parables is as it's paradoxical about them is the fact that they actually are not always the easiest to understand. Sometimes you get this parable and you go, well, this is meant to, to help illustrate something that's difficult to understand, except that the parable itself is actually difficult to understand. This is one of the things that, that people started asking Jesus about. The disciples are asking him about them. And actually, that's by design that they are difficult to understand to some people. Because the parables uh, involve figures of speech and proverbs and metaphors and analogies and stories, but they are meant to communicate to, to an average person whose heart is open to hearing them. But there's another audience that's going to hear that same parable and they're going to say, what's he talking about? I don't see any of the stuff that he's talking about. You know, he's, he's telling a story about some, some coin being lost in a lady's house. What's he doing? What's he going on and on about this? You know, and... They're not getting it, and it doesn't penetrate through. And Jesus actually explains this. He actually talks to his disciples, and he says, here, there's a reason why parables are like this. He, he says that they are meant to do two things. They're meant to reveal, which is what we've already, I've, I've already been saying it, right? He's, he's illustrating something about the kingdom of God so they can understand. He's revealing something. But they're also meant to conceal. So they have two purposes. Hear the same story, two different people, hear two different things. Um, why is he concealing? Well, you, you see it in Mark 4.11. In Mark 4.11, Jesus makes a comment. He's talking about the parables. And it says, uh, he says, when, when they were alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may, in, may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. It actually kind of, um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the beginning of the book of Isaiah. If you remember at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, uh, Jesus is... Or, well, I think Jesus is talking at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, but I'm mixing this up now. <laughs> um, when when the, the call gets given to Isaiah, um, uh, he says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then God says, "Keep go and say this to this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. 
So it's this really strange way to lead off the ministry of this guy who's going to be told, you have all kinds of hard things to say to people, and I want you to go and I want you to tell them. And their eyes are going to be darkened and their ears are going to be stuffed up and they're not going to be able to see and they're not going to be able to understand. And it's on purpose. And it's on purpose. So, so purpose, purposely God is saying, these people aren't going to see and they're not going to hear and they're not going to understand. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So he's giving, he's using a vehicle to convey these things such that it goes in one person's ear and it doesn't go into another person's ear. Um, so the idea is that the, the parables are of help to some people to know the truth better, and, they're, they're, they, and others people are going to be unable to see the truth. So if you're, if you're responsive to the parables, if you're responsive to Christ, the parables are going to make sense. If you're hard-hearted towards Jesus, you're not going to get it. And that's by design. Um, so the purpose of the parables is to, to reveal, and the purpose of the, the parables is to conceal. Now... Here's a subject, uh, we're going to move to another subject, and actually this overlaps with the, uh, oh man, look at that. Got to really, really hey, work with this. Hey Adam. Yes? So he says to the disciples, uh, to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a clear others who are meant to conceal from. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I tend to think that I am one who's been given to know and understand the secrets of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have put my faith in Christ, and uh, I still find that sometimes the parables uh, seem concealed from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing I'm not the only one in the room that this on occasion. It seems like he explains actually the easy ones that I can totally get, yeah. and then, <laughs> then the hard ones. Yeah, like uh, the one about the shrewd business manager, the, you know. Yeah, those ones you read, so there are some that, and they take work. So, yeah, I don't think that he's, I don't think that he's saying, I don't think he's saying you can't, nobody can grasp the parable. And they can't understand the purpose. I think there are, there are atheistic Bible scholars out there who could probably sit down and actually tell you what the parable means. I think what Jesus is actually saying is Christ is concealed from them in the parable. So they see, see it, and they only see it as, a, as a, an abstract, as a lesson about something. But they can't see Christ for them in it. That's what I really think Jesus is meaning when you get right down to it. Well, but he, the, the uh, apostles asked him the meaning of the uh, seed parable. Mm-hmm. And they were like, what was that all about? And Jesus mm-hmm. says to them, don't you get that? Mm-hmm. Not even you. And he had to explain like the entry level one to them. Yeah. So I, mm-hmm. I, it, it's both. I, I yeah. Think. I think both is, is a, yeah. I'm not going to be exclusive on one way or the other. Okay. There's. Because obviously not all of scripture is easy to understand. There are some parts that are easier to understand and, and there are other parts that take a lot of work to understand. Right. So, yeah, I don't want to make it sound like, well, if you're a Christian, then all the Bible is really easy to get and all the parables are really easy to get. And if you have trouble with the Bible, it might be a sign that you're not a believer. Um, but for somebody who is a believer in Christ, even if they see a difficult parable, they, they are still going to look at that text and they're going to see that Christ is for them, even if they don't quite understand the details of it. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, so I picked on, I picked on uh, the idea of the virgin birth and really addressing in a realistic way the, the objections people have to, uh, to miracles. But I actually want to talk about miracles. Uh, I actually want to sort of almost do a philosophical, apologetic approach to miracles a little bit. So because here's the, here's the thing. We live in a city where there are a lot of people who don't believe in miracles. I think we have a lot of people in the city. They may be spiritually minded. They may have, or let me put it another way. They might have be, have be spiritual type people. Um, not being, there's a difference between being a spiritual person and being spiritually minded. Um, but I think there are a lot of questions people have about miracles. So I want to, before we talk about the miracles of Jesus, because we're talking about the teaching of Jesus. I want to talk about the miracles of Jesus. But if you don't address the question of miracles to begin with, then you're going to have trouble believing the miracles of Jesus are real. So I want to address the issue of miracles. I don't know if you'll find anything helpful here. I hope you do. Um, maybe there will be some help here when you're talking to people who maybe they're not as friendly towards the Christian worldview. Um, one of the representatives of those who uh, object to the idea of miracles is a fellow named, this is probably the first real modern uh, uh, opponent of the idea of miracles, is David Hume, Scottish philosopher living in the, I think, late 1600s. I might be mistaken on that, maybe, maybe early 1700s. I think it's 1600s. He, is, he, he makes an argument, and here's his argument. He says, human experience confirms the certainty and unchangeableness of the laws of nature. He says, it is impossible for the laws of nature to be violated. Therefore, miracles cannot take place. So he's, he's very insistent that, that there is no evidence that would ever be strong enough to actually suggest that a miracle has taken place. Uh, there's nothing you could do to convince somebody who believes that this is the case that miracles ever happen. Um, what would he do, given the stance that he's got, right? He says, it is impossible for the laws of nature to be violated. So what if David Hume is looking into the sky and he sees in the clouds written this message? David Hume, it is God. You should believe in me. What is David Hume going to do with that, inf- with that information he just gained by looking at the sky? Yeah, Jeff. He's going to look for a natural explanation for it. He's going to think the wind patterns today are very remarkable. It is interesting how those clouds gathered into that formation for but a, for but a moment. Or what, what might he say? <clears throat> he might say, I have to stop drinking so much espresso in the mornings. You know, uh, or you might say, I should not have had that sandwich. It disagrees with me. Um, there's, there's always going to be an answer to the miracle that he witnesses. Um, and there are embedded in what he is saying here. There are all sorts of, of uh, assumptions, right? He, he makes an assumption that nature is static. Uh, he makes an assumption that if there is a creator, that he has no power to change the universe as he sees fit. Um, um, Here's the problem, though. He's, so he's building all of this upon a law, right? He's got a principle. He's got a law. The law is, or the principle is, everything is fixed. Everything is unchanging. Everything that we see in the world around us is not going to move or vary from its course. And the problem is this. He can't prove it. All he can prove is, well, how does he arrive at the law? How does he arrive at this principle that nature is fixed and never moves? So he's got his experience. What does his experience tell him? 
What does he see that makes him think that things don't change, though? So he perceives, he perceives that everything is the same from moment to moment, right? He perceives that he can make a, an observation about nature, and it always happens that way, right? In other words, he makes an observation, and then what does he have to assume? He has to assume that everything that happens is happening just like that. Everything that's happening is happening according to that fixed pattern. Um, So he assumes that his experience is universal, right? He assumes that the thing that he sees, the thing that that he is seeing in this locality where he is, is the same all over the world. He's assuming that there is no place in the universe where there are miracles because he's not observing them. He assumes that if he's never seen one, then they don't exist, right? He takes his experience and what does he do? He extrapolates it out and he makes a universal principle out of it. And um, Hume recognizes this problem. He recognizes that it's a problem that he is making an assumption based on his own experience in this moment. And so what does Hume say? He says, well, he says, we've never seen the laws of nature violated, but I can't explain why uh, nature is uniform. I can't explain why uh, the universe is unchanging. In other words, he asserts that nature is uniform. He asserts that nature is unchanging, and I would argue that he holds that belief on faith, that he's holding on faith that everything is unchanging, that everything is fixed, because there's only one observation he's making, and that's the one he's making right now. He can't go out into the universe and see everything. He can't really know whether somebody on the other side of the world has just experienced a miracle, and even if they saw it, right, he's already excluded it. So isn't that an extremely circular way of dealing with the question of whether miracles take place? I don't see miracles, therefore miracles don't take place. But if I saw a miracle, I would know that it's not really a miracle. I would know that there's an explanation. Why? Because miracles don't take place. It's the snake is eating its own tail. Um, Here's another argument. Uh, No miracles ever been attested by educated and rational witnesses. I mean, again, you have to define what's educated. <laughs> you have to define what's rational. Yeah, Jim. I have to ask, is there any indication he ever was acquainted with, read, or thought about the Bible? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's Scottish, so he's growing up in a, an environment that's deeply religious, especially in the 16th, uh, 17th century. Okay, I mean, does he ever come back at all to how he... Re- I think of Thomas Jefferson, who read the Bible without the miracles of Christ in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, it, it, he has to have rejected a large portion of scripture. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, like 100. Yeah, I don't think I don't think David Hume, I don't think David Hume had any any use for the Bible. I don't think that he found anything there appealing whatsoever. So, um, so uh, just as one example, though, uh, one example of witnesses. Paul says there are 500 witnesses to the resurrection. He's writing to people who are saying, hey, you can still go talk to them. Right? He, he actually says, there are some who are still alive. Go and meet them. Go and talk to them. Now, obviously, once that generation of those eyewitnesses dies, then you can't go talk to them anymore. But in the moment that he's writing it, he's saying, go ahead and scrutinize. Go ahead and talk to these witnesses. So the, the assertion that nobody's ever, no one who's educated and rational has ever witnessed a miracle simply isn't true. I, I would just put somebody like the Apostle Paul forward and say he counts as educated, right? He counts as somebody who um, certainly would know better. Um, not only that, but you're talking about somebody who has explicitly a good reason not to believe that he's seeing the risen Jesus. 
Um, you're talking about somebody who's built his whole life around not believing in Jesus. Now, Hume is just going to say, well, he's going to have other explanations for the source. He's going to say, this doesn't count as historical material. Why? Because it was written by somebody who believed it. <laughs> if they believed it when they wrote it, then you, then you can't take their word for it. And it has to be somebody that doesn't believe who gets, um, who gets admitted as evidence. Well, that's a very funny thing, right? To find somebody who witnesses something and then doesn't believe that this person is who he said he was. That's quite a... That's quite an, uh, a standard to set up for somebody to actually fulfill. So you've got Hume being selective about who's educated. Well, who's educated? Is David Hume educated? You better believe he thinks he is. Um, is, is David Hume rational? Well, David Hume thinks so. Uh, I, I, I think I, you, you might make an argument that he's not rational. Um, he wasn't a friend of the rationalists, what this says. Well, but but rationalism is actually a school of thought, and he's really just being more general. He's saying somebody who is rational would. Con- <laughs> so here's the funny thing: if you said, actually, David, David, I saw a miracle, and he would say, then you are not rational. So what that means is that he can never actually meet somebody who's rational, and he can never meet someone who's educated, who's ever seen a miracle. Because you're seeing a miracle eliminates you from that group, that very important group known as those who are, who are rational and those who are educated. So, um, but so, and what's he also doing? He's also saying, look, human beings just have this tendency to believe in the spectacular. Human beings just have this tendency to believe these sort of things. Human beings are suckers. You know, that's what David Hume is saying. He's, he's like, people believe anything. You just set something before them and they'll believe it. And, and the truth is that actually might be true for some. There are some people who will just believe anything that people tell them. But it's often not true. Not every human being is a sucker. Not every human being believes everything that gets put before them. Um, one of the things you see in scripture, and, and you may notice this in my preaching sometimes that I'll highlight this. Uh, I don't know how often I've done that recently. Um, not really in the First Timothy series, but I think I do it when we were going through the Gospels. Is I like to point out when people don't believe. I like to point out when people resist. Uh, I like to point out when people see something happen and they try to explain it away. Because when you see it happen in the New Testament, it is evidence that these people are not inclined to believe. That they're not just by nature just gravitating toward the miraculous. That they're not suckers, in other words. They're not going to just believe something just because someone says it. Um, they, they need evidence, even the people of Israel, right? The people of Israel are resistant to the idea of God speaking through Moses. And what is God doing? He presents them with overwhelming evidence that they need to listen to Moses. Why? Because they don't believe that God sent Moses. Um, uh, you have Thomas. You have Thomas the skeptic. Uh, Thomas, you know, he says, I won't believe unless, and then he gives very specific conditions under which he will be persuaded. So what does he need? He needs, he's, people's word is not good enough, which if you're his friends, you're like, bro, (laughs) you think we're all, this is an episode of punked? Well, that was a really old reference. <laughs> Ashton Kutcher's going to jump out and say, just kidding. Um, no, like, like you have to imagine they're all going, but we wouldn't lie to you, Thomas. We're not crazy. And you know that we're reasonable people. And so Thomas says, no, I've got to see him. 
And even seeing him isn't good enough. I've got to be able to touch him. I, I can't, it's not enough just to touch him. I actually need to touch that wound and make sure that it's real. I need to actually know that this is really the same person, that there's continuity between the guy that was crucified and the guy that's standing in front of me. It, it is the most rigorous standard that somebody could actually have put before them. And, in, and Jesus in his ministry, in his grace and in his kindness gives Thomas that. Thomas isn't owed that. He really didn't have to. But it's, it's interesting, though. It's Jesus showing somebody with a skeptical mindset can actually stand up, the, the, that all of this can actually stand up in front of him if, if needed. And that's what Thomas is. Thomas represents the David Humes, right? Thomas represents that. And, and Jesus says, look, I'm happy to meet your test. But you just need to know that you don't get to set the rules for faith. You don't get to set the rules for belief. I'm not going to appear physically in front of every single person and let everybody put their hands in my hand inside. That's not the plan because Jesus says what? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's not mental trickery. That is not him foisting something on humanity. That is Jesus saying it genuinely truly is better if you hear the gospel message and you don't physically see Jesus, he's actually saying you're more blessed, you're more happy, you're more joyful, you're going to have a life of faith because you're somebody who can follow me without putting all these tests upon me. In other words, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So Adam, yeah. now, now we're in a moment, take David, you put him aside, mm-hmm. and now put Joe Rogan, who is the most popular podcaster, talking about aliens and having experts and guests talk about their experiences. And so I feel like we're in a moment where people are more open to things like that, discussions like that, seeking after something otherworldly mm-hmm. in order to make sense of this world. And, um, and I mean, I've, I've listened um, to a couple of hours worth of discussions with these people speaking seriously about these things, guys that go sit in the desert looking at the stars and, and talking about their experiences. And so um, I don't know if you're gonna be talking about the opposite of David Hume, but it's like people are grasping for something that's otherworldly, that's supernatural. Mm-hmm. It's not Christ, it's not God. Well, and the aliens are funny because, <laughs> aliens aren't really funny. Um, <laughs> when, I was a, when I was a kid, I thought E.T. was funny. Um, <laughs> but aliens are a really funny, strange modern this is what i think aliens are if i could just c.s lewis says he's open to aliens say fine you know i uh, i love the space trilogy who's read the space trilogy can we get endorsements would anybody keep your hand up if you would tell people to read the space trilogy you should read it right now too yeah i'd let your kids read the first two books but i'd let them get a little older yeah the third one with the brain and the vat and stuff kind of weird um, yeah, I, re- I loved the second one. So I, I like, I lo- I've read Paralandra over and over again. Um, but C.S. Lewis is open to aliens, fine. But here's the thing I, I think about aliens. Aliens are a modern person's ability to have some sort of sense of transcendence without needing to be responsible to the one that's transcendent, right? Um, space aliens never ask anything of you. They never demand anything of you. They don't have any expectations of you. Um, they are up there and they make you feel like you have an explanation for why life is on this earth, which you, it really doesn't solve anything. 
Uh, it gives you something that you can reach for beyond yourself and make you feel like there is bigness out there in the universe. So it really is that human impulse for the transcendent, but it's a transcendent of something that's still so limited that it doesn't demand anything of you and it doesn't mess with your life. Like space aliens is, hopefully anyway, space aliens just stay up there and don't bother us and let us be who we are. And God, on the other hand, very much has demands that he places upon us and he created us for a reason and he has moral expectations of us. And you can just see how a modern person who yearns for there to be something else out there says, well, maybe there's a green man and it's flying saucer up there. You know, maybe there are, are beings out there beyond ourselves that we don't know about. No, not angels. Um, you know, something else. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Have that enough comment on Joe Rogan? <laughs> I don't actually know what Joe Rogan. I think Joe Rogan is the kind of guy that, like, if someone who believes in space aliens comes on his show, Joe's like, whoa, space aliens. And if someone else comes on and says they don't believe in him, he's like, yeah, space aliens are kind of weird. Um, <laughs> I think somebody once likened him, somebody once likened him to like Genghis Khan, like bring someone into my court to tell me about the strange spaceman. And then somebody else come in and tell me about something else. And I'll believe that after that guy talks. So anyway, I'm talking far too much about somebody I don't know anything about. Um, here's another argument that, that uh, Hume makes. He says there, there are claims of miracles that occur in all religious traditions Therefore, nullifying all of them, right? He says, look, all these religious people all think that, uh, that miracles are taking place in their religious traditions. Therefore, that's how we know that actually there aren't really any legitimate claims because they're all just canceling each other out. They can't all be right, and so they must all be false. Well, right, he's right in one sense. Miracles do occur in all religious traditions. Everybody's saying that there are miracles that take place in one way or another. However, it is wrong to say that all of them must be false, Right? All that you know is that, that uh, they can't all be true. But that doesn't mean that they are all false. Um, by the way, not all miracles are done by God. Uh, it is entirely conceivable that there is, are demonic, is demonic activity. It is possible, just as an example, that, uh, you know, uh, let me think. Salman Rushdie, are you guys familiar with his book, Satanic Verses? Um, I'm using creativity here, and so is Salman Rushdie, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that the Quran is not of divine origin. <laughs> if it's not of divine origin, does that mean it's of human origin? Not necessarily. And this is what gets Salman Rushdie a death sentence, you know, making that possible suggestion. Um, not all miracles are necessarily done by God. Uh, the... Uh, what are the names of the priests in Pharaoh's court who do the miracles? Yeah. As far as we can tell, those are, seem to be real miracles. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's God doing it. So, um, you know, a miracle is not necessarily a proof or disproof of a religion. Um, here's the question, though. Um, in other words, so in other words, the miracles in other religions does, don't prove or disprove miracles in Christianity. That's my argument. Um, here's the question, though. Miracles. Did Jesus perform miracles? Well, one of the things you see in the life of Jesus. All right, David, here, get out of here. You got no place in church. Um, did Jesus perform miracles? Well, 
Jesus is viewed by those who are observers of his life as somebody who is a miracle worker. The people who talk about him, the people who observe him, the people who tell others about Jesus say that he's a miracle worker. Uh, you have a few secular sources. You know, I talked about the fact that some people say, well, you know, you can't listen to the Christian sources because they believe in Jesus. If they believe in Jesus, then you can't believe him, right? Because they're biased, right? They, they, they want it to be true or, or they're convinced of it. You need, to, you need to hear only from unbiased people who have no dog in this fight, right? And if you set those rules, then you end up with a very limited uh, amount of things that you can actually know about Jesus. But even if you do follow those rules, even if you say, that's how we're going to do this, you have secular sources. I'm going to mention three. One is Josephus. You have to be careful with Josephus because it does appear that uh, some of his writings were tampered with. Um, however, even, even those who sort of pick apart Josephus and say that, that there, are, there are quotes of Josephus that have been added and expanded and things that maybe uh, scribes later added in. You still have the original version that uh, people still think are re is real where he speaks about Jesus. And specifically, he says Jesus is a doer of startling deeds. It's the phrase that he uses. A doer of startling deeds. So this is a Jewish historian. He's writing about things that are happening in his time period. And he says, look, people know at least one thing about Jesus. He did miracles, basically. Or at least he was said to be somebody who did miracles. Um, you also have something called the Babylonian Talmud. Again, a Jewish source, not a Christian source. The Babylonian Talmud says that Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. Well, you would expect a Jewish source to say that Jesus led Israel astray. But it's interesting to hear them say also that he did magic. Some of the translations say sorcery, that he was a sorcerer. Uh, but they include, in other words, miraculous things in Jesus's life and ministry, not just teaching. Um, John P. Meyer is a, uh, not a Christian apologist at all. Uh, he says this about the miracles of Jesus. He says, the miracle traditions about Jesus's public ministry are already so widely attested in various sources and literary forms by the end of the first Christian generation that total fabrication by the early church is practically speaking impossible. So when he says practically speaking impossible, it means you can't account for it because you're within a generation. Um, uh, he's not seen by his contemporaries as just a moral teacher. When people are talking about Jesus, immediately what are they doing? They're saying he did startling deeds. He did sorcery. He did things. He tricked people. He used his, he used his magic to fool people, in other words. So in other words, embedded in the ministry of Jesus from the very beginning by the earliest generations and the earliest witnesses, they're saying the miraculous is necessarily a part of the ministry of Jesus. Modern people want to just talk about Jesus the teacher. They just want to talk about Jesus as somebody who, is, who, who said wise things and had good ethics and had good morality and taught people to love each other. And yet you can't separate the miracles from the teaching because the miracles and the teaching end up defining who he is. And what he was doing. The miracles are meant to attest to the fact that his teaching is true. So they go together. Um, let's talk a little bit about the significance of the miracles. What kind of miracles did he do? Uh, one, one type of miracle that he does, did is, is exorcisms. You see exorcisms in the life of Jesus where he's casting demons out of people. 
Uh, Jesus said when he talked about his, his exorcism, he, he would make comments along the lines that he would say that this is a spiritual assault on the dominion of Satan. When he's doing, when he's doing a miracle, like casting a demon out of someone, he is, he is, he's declaring full-on war on Satan. And he's saying that Satan is now under assault by me. Satan has been assaulting God's people for centuries. Now I take the fight to him, is what Jesus says. Uh, in Mark, he compares uh, Satan to a strong man. And he basically says, I'm about to rob his house. And so what does he do? He says, he must be bound. And so what am I doing? I'm doing miracles. I'm binding him up so that I can go in and loot Satan's house and take whatever I want. Uh, the God of this world is being wrapped up right now. Um, he doesn't just do exorcisms. He also does healings. Sometimes they are not far apart from each other. Uh, in a sense, what is Jesus doing when he do, does a healing? When he heals somebody, what is he saying? What's he communicating? What is being said about Jesus? In a sense, Jesus is saying, I'm undoing the curse of the fall, right? Because what does the fall do? The fall introduces sickness. The fall introduces death. The, the fall introduces decay. People's bodies fall apart. People go blind. People get sick. Um, and Jesus is saying, uh, he's turning that back. He's turning back to before all of that was taking place. Um, Christ's kingdom is, is moving forward offensively, not defensively. He is not on the defense against Satan. He is, he is going to him. He is actively transforming the world and changing it into his likeness and taking it away from being what the world was like after the fall. He touches a sick person. He touches a leper. Um, there's this woman with the bleeding problem, right? Uh, he can't be made unclean when he touches them. He only makes clean. Uh, he, is, he is undoing what happens in the fall. Another type of healing he does is the... He raises the dead. Uh, he does that with the little girl. You remember Jairus' daughter? He uh, says, Talitha kum, little girl, rise. He, he raises her up. Um, you have the widow's son in Luke chapter 7. You have Lazarus in John chapter 11. All of these, again, very much like his healing miracle. What is he doing? He's turning back the clock. He's, he's taking the fight to Satan. He's saying, look, what did Adam and Eve hear when they were, when they were uh, given instruction at the tree? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And he's saying... I have the power over life and death. See, he's, the miracles aren't just miracles for miracles' sake. They're meant to communicate something about him. They're meant to help people actually see him and see who he is and see what his purpose is and see what he's there for. Jesus is undoing the curse of the fall. Uh, you also have another class of miracles. There, I'll just call them nature miracles. Uh, he turns water into wine multiplies loaves and fish. He, he withers the fig tree. He walks on water. He stills the storm. Um, all of these things are things that he is demonstrating his own power over, right? So if nature's fixed and if nature can't be changed, then, then yes, these miracles are really hard to believe. Um, how you react to miracles is going to depend on your prior assumptions about the universe that you bring into the account. If you, if you come in 
and you have an assumption about the universe that everything is fixed, that it can't be violated, that everything is the way it always is and it, it will stay the way that it always is and there is no varying, there is no change from all of those things, then indeed all of these things are going to be very troubling to you. But you have, and so what does that mean? That means that when we see Jesus, we have to be willing to admit our presuppositions that we're bringing in, and we have to think about how they dominate how we hear about the miracles and how we receive them. Our own predisposition defines what we are willing to believe and what we reject. And and that actually, you know, somebody who listens who's an unbeliever, they're going to say, yeah, because Christians are suckers. Right? But then what is the Christian equally able to say to the other listener? You are very close-minded. You know? And, and, and you know, one of them is right. <laughs> Actually, they both could be right. Yes. Uh, Mark, Eric, what were you going to say? Um, would you classify the transfiguration under a miracle of nature? No. That probably gets its own... I don't know. What would you, what kind of, what would you classify it as? I mean, it's, it's incredible because he literally, like, <clears throat> between yeah. our physical reality and the spiritual reality where, you know, people that have died centuries before are present with him, but then he's transformed to this, you know, almost indescribable form and figure and, and his, you know, apostles are just dumbfounded. Yeah. Yeah, they're just, they, they just start saying stupid things because they're so freaked out. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I don't know where you would classify it, but yeah. This isn't exhaustive. It's just kind of a summary a little bit. Um, I, I think it's important if you, if you know someone or maybe if you struggle uh, with the idea of miracles, one of the things that I think anybody should do is, is examine your assumptions. Examine the things that you believe. Examine the, the beliefs that you bring into your evaluation of miraculous events that are communicated to you and ask yourself the question, what is it that I because of my own beliefs about the universe, include, exclude, what are the things that I'm not willing to consider uh, as, I, as I'm thinking about what these miracles are, right? Ask critical questions like this. Let's say you've got these assumptions. Where did you get those assumptions from? Where did you learn them? How can you prove that the universe operates by fixed laws that can never, under any circumstances, be violated? How would you prove that? Um, if you believe that only what you see uh, is what's real, how did you gain that belief? Did you only gain it by seeing? If you only believe that only what you see is what's real, how did you observe that? Are you able to consistently arrive at those positions? And I think what you start to see is that there's way more personal assumption and personal belief and personal faith that gets injected into those sorts of evaluations. Um, the belief against miracles is, is self-defeating. Yeah. yeah, I mean, addressing the things that you are willing to believe and not believe beforehand. That's, that's, that's called a presupposition. Yeah, Jeff. I, I don't know if this helps people, but I hope it does. I wasn't raised Christian. I started reading the Bible in my late teens. I was offended constantly by what Jesus said. He challenged my thinking. He still does. And I don't think the secularist has that. I don't think that the secularist is uh, called aside by Jesus to repent or to think about this differently. Uh, I, just, I just think the, the Christian's condition to be uh, considering things uh, like that. And I've talked to a lot of secularists who, I want to 
assault them, but they have been conditioned to question what they believe. Mm -hmm. And we have. And to examine the whole that's good. So I think the Christians have sure. an amazing advantage in intellectual honesty. Mm -hmm. uh, and also for better character, because he she always uh, examined uh, uh, our worldview can be challenged, and it stands up under under scrutiny. Um, the other, I I think that a worldview that excludes the possibility of miracles cannot be challenged. It can't be challenged. It is it is as if you ever hear or heard of fideism. Fideism is a is a belief that you hold without argument, without reason, and and that's exactly what a an atheistic worldview says, right, it can't be pushed or challenged because everything can be explained away. Yeah, one more thing. This, 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 this is, I think, you know, it's a tragedy, I think, but I chuckled that you talk to a naturalistic person and they look for a naturalistic explanation for everything. They go, that, 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 how, what? I mean, you can't, you can't be serious that, that you, you, you define reality in its own bounds and refuse to consider anything outside of that. And it's just, as a former atheist myself, I can just tell you that uh, I never thought that Christianity had any good arguments. And so I sort of believed by subtraction. I just thought, well, Christianity just isn't true because there are no good arguments. And I realize now I would have excluded any good arguments. I, I needed the Lord to actually touch my own heart and make me willing. Um, and that's kind of what I'm kind of getting around to is when we talk about dealing with our own presuppositions – are we, are we willing to have our heart changed and have our, our attitude toward these things modified by the Lord? And that's the challenge that everybody has to face. But I, if, you know, if there's somebody that says, well, I'm really, really open-minded, I'm going to be like, are you? Like, like are you open-minded? Uh, have you decided to exclude this? Um, and I think generally people, people need to receive that challenge. They need to hear it. Um, we would talk more, but it's after 12.15, and I feel bad leaving the teachers over there. So well, you guys can keep talking with me afterwards to talk with each other. Um, this is an important subject. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help for us to be fair in how we represent others, but I pray you would also help for us to be fair in how we consider uh, evidence, how we consider your truth, how we consider um, your universe. Would you help us to be open-minded? If there is hardness of heart, if there's a resistance to believe in you, would you help us to see where that comes from, whether there's something inside our own hearts that we resist you? Uh, would you be with us this week? Would you help your, your, your word to bear fruit in our lives? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.